This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Before we get to the show, I just want to say thank you for all of you out there who are supporting the show by clicking on the links and purchasing the music or the books. We appreciate you very much. And for all those who haven't and are thinking about supporting us, just go inside the show notes of each episode and click on the links to the songs or the books, and it'll take you right to where you can purchase it. And it's a win-win because you support the guests of the show, um, and we get a small commission, which then goes toward to the operations of the show. So again, for all you who have supported us, thank you so much. And for all those who are thinking about supporting us, we appreciate you as well. All right. Peace. Today, I'm talking with Emmanuel Ness about his most recent book entitled Southern Insurgency, The Coming of the Global Working Class. Emmanuel Ness is professor of political science at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. His research focuses on labor organization and mobilization, migration, worker insurgencies, and resistance and social movements against oppression. Southern Insurgency uncovers new forms of worker organization in India, South Africa, and China. With the decline of the trade union movement in the West, he shows how workers here can learn to combat globalized industrial capitalism in ambitious, militant, and creative ways and develop new forms of solidarity and struggle. Professor Emmanuel Ness, welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond. It's a pleasure, Taj. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being on the show. Um, just want to let you know that this is an incredible book, and I want to understand what motivated you. Why did you take it on? The main reason why I decided to write this book uh, is because um, of my great interest in the uh, nature of workers today and you know, here in the United States, uh, there has been a shift away from industrial production uh, to places like Mexico, South America, China, and beyond, Vietnam and so forth. And uh, I think it's very important to understand how the working class has changed in uh, the rest of the world, really, and how it's changed here in the United States. And so I'm very much motivated by uh, doing research amongst the working class uh, throughout the world, and I, I decided to embark on this very long project over the last, uh, you know, actually over the last 10 years, which I'm continuing to work on, and that is kind of mapping uh, the working class around the world. And uh, you know, I think it's, it was, it's very important for all of us to uh, recognize that uh, workers uh, around the world are engaged in, the, in production and uh, other kinds of services and so forth, and that their uh, work is, to a large extent, fueling uh, economic change and economic growth in, uh, for capitalists around the world. Uh, and uh, we should understand our role as workers here in the United States uh, and the possibilities that we have here in transforming this, the oppression we have here uh, by, in fact, helping workers and supporting their struggles around the world through solidarity actions. So why hasn't there been a focus from the media on the labor movements in the global south? Why is that? I think primarily because uh, there is uh, a very uh, short attention span. Uh, I mean, for instance, um, there is a sense of, I would say, in the media of uh, publicizing uh, events that are extremely uh, relevant to specific stories uh, around, you know, what's happening uh, in the local area, what's happening nationally, uh, and um, not extending it to uh, a global situation. So, for instance, if people think about uh, certain parts of the world where there's a lot of production industries, 
uh, it's more likely they'll, in fact, discuss uh, how the United States may have disagreements with some of these countries, what else is going on, but rarely, if ever, do they uh, uh, discuss workers' insurgencies, workers' struggles, strikes, workers' movements, and the transformation uh, of them. The reason, I think, is because there is, you know, with the exception of your show and a few others, there is, uh, to a large extent, a dominant media in the United States that's controlled, you know, as you all know, by five or six corporations mm-hmm. that doesn't really expose the issues that affect uh, real people, such as uh, workers here and workers around the world. And as a consequence, uh, uh, if we really were to understand the nature of the products that we wear and uh, we use and so forth and the way they're produced, uh, it, it becomes very um, uh, controversial. So therefore, uh, the case of the Foxconn workers in Shenzhen in south, uh, southeast China who um, were uh, committing suicide in 2014 mm-hmm. uh, because they were being fired. Uh, and, for instance, Foxconn workers produce uh, Apple iPhones. Right. Um, you know, Apple itself doesn't want to have any connection to these kinds of events, so it sort of divorces itself by contracting out much of this work. So people won't say, hey, look, you know, I'm using a phone that, you know, costs really 5 or $6 to make, um, and, you know, I'm paying $600 for it or more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these phones are actually produced by sweatshop labor. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's very uncomfortable for, you know, individuals, but especially for the corporate uh, media. It doesn't, you know, it's very much closely tied to finance and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I, I think and, and big companies like Apple and uh, so forth, uh, yeah. major auto companies, so, so let's get a little, little deeper on what you said because it makes sense. So, how, how did foreign capital from these multinational corporations come, come to dictate the conditions of work in the global South? You know, and to a point where they actually prevent workers from even forming independent unions. How were they able to dictate what goes on? Well, that's a very good question. It's a very big question, but, uh, you know, let me try to summarize the processes that took place. You know, as we all know, during the 1980s, there has been uh, largely a shift of production away from uh, the United States and Western Europe, you know, starting the steel industries, uh, going on to to various uh, garment and textile industries, extending to electronics and then to auto. And, you know, for instance, uh, there was, uh, it's very clear that many of the uh, much of the work was produced, in, you know, originally in the United States. So, to some extent, uh, what has happened, just to summarize very quickly here, is that you know the profits produced by workers here were reinvested in facilities and installations around the world where workers could be exploited even at a higher rate. So, uh, what's happened over the last 20 years has been the notion that uh, Margaret uh, Thatcher has popularized: there is no alternative. So we have the emergence of a form of capitalism uh, in which every every person in every country must accept uh, or being completely isolated from the world system of markets and so forth. And so countries are very uh, uh, concerned with being you know, part of the world community. And, you know, part of this process, in fact, is that, you know, we have the growth of Wall Street and we have the growth of the city of London and uh, other uh, major stock exchanges at the expense of what are many people to popularize as Main Street or basically the local control over or local ownership even over industries or even national ownership. So what what does it mean when you know, Wall Street has control over things? It means that you know rather than corporations really controlling uh, the investment process, or which I think is not even great, obviously not great at all, we have finance capital that has done so. So finance capital invests on behalf of corporations uh, around the world, billions of dollars, and they invest in you know companies like uh, Apple. They invest in companies uh, like Uber and so forth, a lot of these new industries, which seek to uh, further lower wages uh, to new, what I would refer to, levels of super exploitation. And so what happens is in... 
let's say places like uh, uh, Southeast China, to stick with that example, uh, in cities like Shenzhen uh, and uh, you know around the Pearl River Delta of Hong Kong, there uh, was a lot of uh, foreign investment into these markets, and you know it's not just Wall Street, but other stock markets around the world. And uh, we call this foreign direct investment. And you know, in, in essence, you have production centers that are built up uh, that are able to produce goods in mass at very very low wages and that the profits are far higher. But there's a catch to this, Taj, that it's not that, uh, for instance, a company like Honda or a company uh, like Amazon, or forgive me, not Amazon, Honda, uh, Apple, uh, and you know, other automobile companies, uh, Ford, etc., are investing uh, in a specific location uh, and for workers to produce there, wherever it is. What they're doing is they're contracting out the work to subcontractors. So that the production facility that produces, let's say, Adidas shoes or Nike shoes is not actually owned by Nike or Adidas, but they dictate the terms. So, for instance, uh, let's uh, in the case of athletic shoes, we'll say they say well, they tell us, they tell the contractor uh, that they want the shoe to be produced at three dollars a shoe. And now that's you know, and uh, just an example. And that uh, the contractor says, okay, and so they pass down the cost to the worker, and the worker, you know, gets paid wages on the basis of $3 a shoe. And we all know that, you know, a typical Nike or Adidas shoe costs about $100 or more or less, but about $100. And so you can see the level of profits that can be accrued outside the United States Mm -hmm. if it's uh, done through subcontractors. And so these subcontractors themselves are very large companies, and they subcontract at work down to even lower levels, where you have you know even higher levels of oppression, super exploitation, people who can't afford to live on the wages they have, and so the process of work is speeded up, uh, the wages are are lowered, the conditions of work are dangerous, and on and on. And and in this case, I think it's very important to you know document and recognize how uh, you know. Uh, Commodities we receive, automobiles, electronics, uh, and so forth, are in fact the a result of really uh, highly exploited labor. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's really the uh, finance capitalists and these large corporations, these multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, corporations, who are capable of doing that kind of investment. And in, in this way, as you pointed out earlier, they actually control the production process by ensuring that wages are extremely low. Uh, and their profits are extremely high. And so they get surplus value that is extremely great, far greater than before. And, you know, therefore, these countries or these places like India, South Africa, and China, uh, in these specific industries, but especially China and and India, are able to have higher levels of production, or forgive me, um, higher levels of productivity uh, amongst their workforce, but only on the basis of exploiting workers. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Since I was a kid, you taught me how to slit a throat and make it feel like a kiss. Taught me the value of hard work by sitting on your ass while I sweated in the French fry vats. Got a 10 cent raise, couldn't live off that. Let's go on vacation, hang out and eat hotel food in a place that's equally destitute as every other place we ever knew. Till the underwater Madison Avenue, watch you drown in a Bangkok bungalow. If you could talk about the the describe the 
living conditions and just the insecurities of being a migrant worker and how that plays to the advantage of these multinational corporations? Well, uh, that's also a very important uh, point, uh, and it's a crucial one when we examine workers uh, in the world. First of all, the majority of the population of the planet shifted about 10 years ago from rural to urban. Here in the United States, we know that over 95%, 98% of the population here is urban and suburban and live in metropolitan areas, etc., outside of rural areas, uh, notwithstanding what the, the media tells us. Uh, around elections especially. So in other words, the American workforce, uh, Western workforces are you know, 95% urban and suburban, whereas in places like uh, India and China, historically, that percentage has you know, barely crept up to 20% and so forth. So the vast majority of uh, workers and, and population, peasants, etc., were living in rural areas. Over the last 30 years or so, 40 years, in China, India, and, and South Africa, Turkey, you name the country, there has been a, a major shift that has taken place, and that is that a larger number, a percentage of population has moved to urban areas as migrant workers. And much of the migration is not external, it's internal, so that in the case of China, people move from the south and southwest of China to the major urban areas, let's say around Shanghai, Hong Kong, etc., and we're talking about urban regions that are the largest in the world in the case of the region uh, around Hong Kong called Guangdong Province. There's about 100 million people in that region alone, and, and so that, you know, it's about 10% of Chinese population, actually 12%, bringing the 8%. But that notwithstanding, the point would be is that, so workers are drawn to workplaces. In many cases, they're displaced from the rural areas because they can't survive there anymore, or because they're kicked off in the case of uh, India, where you have a very large peasant workforce that uh, can't survive in, in rural areas. And so they are pushed to the urban areas where they uh, become uh, workers. Um, and the conditions of that work, you know, where they live is frequently in slums, or almost exclusively in slums, where they don't have clean water, where there's no electricity or very limited levels of electricity, where there's very limited uh, access to education, health care, and so forth, and they're highly dangerous conditions. And in those same areas, um, there is, uh, you know, there are workplaces producing steel, for instance, in places like New Delhi, where you have a neighborhood of 150,000 people, Old Wazir for, right in the middle of Delhi, where steel production takes place at very, very low rates of wages and compensation. But, you know, for instance, a lot of these countries are creating these various zones, uh, which are called economic processing zones, Mm -hmm. where uh, labor laws don't have to be enforced like the rest of these countries. Wow. I have to say that they are to a great extent. And uh, these are the areas, these export production zones, that Wall Street, the city of London, Tokyo, uh, Frankfurt, and other stock markets invest in, because here is where the profits can be. Uh, expanded dramatically. So you're saying? So as product, I'm yeah. sorry. So just elaborate on those on those export production zones, and I think also I think it's called special enterprising zones. These kind of like outskirt yeah. the laws, or they create new laws outside of uh, of what the country yeah. is. Mm-hmm. So actually, they're basically the same thing. In okay. economic processing zone, EPZ is the same thing as a special enterprise zone. So, for instance, in China, they may call it a special enterprise zone. In India, they may call it an economic processing zone, etc. So, it's the same basic thing. And I think, you know, you can use either term, but I just use EPZ, economic processing zone, because I use one and a number of them. But essentially, what happens is that you have uh, countries who are investing their own resources to build up docks to make sure that the ports are capable of handling cargo that is produced in these areas, uh, that you know, create, you know, build roads, rail lines, uh, build everything, you know, up to the factory to make it extremely easy for foreign capital to invest in industries that are, you know, all crowded in a specific location, usually near ports, but not always, but near transportation facilities. And so they, you, you have uh, a lot of this capital going to these areas. You have contractors that take out loans and or. Uh, 
abide by the terms of these major corporations. Uh, and um, as a consequence, they build facilities in these areas and that workers from rural areas come there and uh, were pushed there uh, to eke out a living, uh, usually living uh, in sweatshops or they're usually living in slum communities or if they're lucky, they live in dormitories for certain periods of the year. So they're isolated from their families and outside life to a large extent and, uh, you know, very highly marginalized uh, in this process. So, so essentially what's happening is that these special enterprise zones or economic processing zones are highly, are largely funded by the countries that are extremely poor themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. we should not think of necessarily India as a rich place. I mean, it's a very poor country, even though it's a large country with a lot of rich people. Uh, by and large, most of the population uh, is very poor, uh, you know, not doing well or extremely poor. And you know, that's also true to a large extent in China, where the working class gets paid very low wages. And we often say, say China is a competitor, but in fact, its working class is not doing well at all. Yeah. It's certainly better than and China, you, but not as You bring up a good point there, because if you, if you watch the news, they talk about India, they talk about China like they are the supposed to be the exemplary models of capitalism. But it's actually not true. It's actually the opposite of that, if you get down deep into it. Isn't that kind of correct? Absolutely. In fact, you have a lot of Westerners who are responsible for it. You know, some Americans, or sort of Europeans and other you know, Japanese, go to places like China because they know it's kind of, uh, you know, if you, you can strike gold by exploiting labor. And where labor costs might be uh, a fifth of what they might be in, in Japan or, you know, even less in the United States and in Western Europe. And so they go there uh, because they feel that they can make huge levels of profit. And so it is sort of like a, a gold rush uh, to, uh, in fact, exploit labor. But think of these large multinationals, you know, backed up by major banks around the world who are investing in those areas. I mean, that's where they make profit when, you know, none of us have really savings to speak of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if there's any savings or anything like that that they're able to accumulate, they reinvest in these areas where they could make, you know, 20% or more on their uh, investment as opposed to here in the United States where, you know, the investment profits have been, are not as great because even though such the conditions have deteriorated in this country for its working class, without question, um, the level of profits are far lower than they could be in places like China, you know, which really debunks a very important part of what Donald Trump had argued, that China is a threat to the United States. And the only threat is, is if the United States withdraws from, which they'll never do, but let's say China withdraws from the United States. And who will produce all the products? Right, right. And and you did talk about how, you know, the global north. That's where like all of the 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 profits go. So it's almost like the global north is highly dependent on the global south. And if if you can talk about, um, you know, the the hostile relationship between um, organized labor and capital, and how capital responds when labor isn't in its favor? What can you tell me about? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I'd start off by saying is that uh, the, um, you know, finance uh, and these capitalists only try to invest in the areas where uh, labor is docile and not militant, where unions are not permitted. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in India, almost all the investment has gone into these economic processing zones. Another point about them is that uh, the states like India and so forth do not permit unions to uh, emerge or they highly repress the unions. So mm-hmm. in the area around New Delhi um, uh, called Gurgaon in the Haryana province to the southeast of New Delhi, forgive me, southwest of New Delhi, uh, there is, uh, you know, that's where all, you know, much of the production in that region takes place. Uh, and the state highly represses unions. So some of the major unions there cannot even organize. But what does take place, and this is something that's continuous throughout the history of capitalism, is that workers do protest. They do go on strike. They do engage in collective activity uh, and are solidaristic toward uh, their, you know, other workers, even across industries. Uh, and so, even though workers, you know, real unions are not permitted, uh, there have been many of the strikes that have taken place in India have been by independent unions uh, or by unions that are fledgling unions that are emerging rooted in the working, you know, directly through the working class as opposed to the kinds uh, that are filtered through union bureaucracies. So that the level of militancy, because it's direct worker militancy, 
sometimes backed up by very uh, progressive political organizations, um, uh, have far more power than you know, organizations engaged in collective bargaining and reaching a, an agreement uh, that is usually not in favor, you know, favorable to workers in the first place, usually favors capital. Mm-hmm. So that you do have uh, much higher levels of militancy, militancy in much the same way as, you know, 19th, you know, 20th century American workers who, you know, up until the 1960s and 70s, were engaged in mass strikes and uh, worker um, insurgencies that, you know, kind of uh, made uh, it possible for uh, workers to gain some concessions from uh, big business. So, for instance, the minimum wage, uh, the good working conditions, uh, health benefits and so forth, they're all a result of worker resistance and worker uh, mm-hmm. insurgency. But you know, now that we don't have much of a industrial base uh, to speak of in terms of workers and industrial industries compared to the past, uh, a lot of this conflict is now displaced uh, into uh, the global south. And I agree, it's good to distinguish between the north and the south. Where, you know, for instance, the traditional unions can't organize there uh, or maybe be, maybe unwilling to in certain ways. Uh, and so you have a really great level of direct worker uh, action and militancy. Like I said, I, the most strongest of it is gui- guided by, I would say, very progressive political organizations, not parties, organizations that are uh, advancing uh, these uh, these interests. And they do shake, uh, you know, the, the you know capitalism, you know, when... When athletic shoe workers for Adidas went on strike in uh, Dongguan in uh, the Pearl River Delta near Hong Kong, you know, that was the largest strike in the history of the private sector in China in 2014. Some 50,000 workers in one in factories that are owned by Adidas that also produce for Reebok and Nike went on strike. You know, that that shook the foundation of the company and they had to concede to some degree to certain norms, although obviously they're not necessarily abided by. And then, you know, for instance, we have companies like Apple, which doesn't own any of the facilities that they actually uh, have uh, iPhones or, you know, any of the uh, computer products they sell. Uh, All this is contracted out, even to the point where the, you know, the plastic covers of phones, the lens of the phone, uh, every single part of the iPhone is actually contracted out to small contractors in the region. And so... If a strike takes place in one location, all Apple has to do is relocate it to another. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the power of um, nature of multinational corporations, Apple being, I think, the largest in the world in terms of profitability, uh, how they make profits by, in fact, controlling production, even though they don't own it, by saying, okay, we have a strike here. Let's just get rid of that contractor and move on to another place. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen over and over again with Apple, actually, with that company engaged in this kind of abuse of its workforce wow that's well that's 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 just incredible how using contractors it kind of isolates them from the problems and at the same time it allows them high flexibility uh to move around whenever they feel like they are threatened and uh, that it might threaten their profits wow <laughs> that's incredible and I, I actually you know this is not anything i mean not anything against apple because yes they operate just like any other company right. you know if you own an apple iphone that's okay i mean there's really no what are you going to buy instead of it there might be yeah. a cheaper phone or yeah so it's not no criticism amongst consumers mm-hmm. except i think we should be aware of it and support the struggles of workers that's another story altogether we'll be right back What you wanted us to be We are what we are That's the way It's going to be If you don't know You can't educate us Or no equal opportunity Talking about my freedom People free 
Existing unions that are in these countries, they have kind of been bought out by the multinational corporations. Why, why, aren't, why do the workers don't really look toward those, the existing unions they have? Instead, they're forming their own more independent militant kind of uh, uh, um, uh, protest and resistance. Uh, well, I'd say the first issue would be either they are controlled by the states, uh, so whether it's uh, China, India, Vietnam, Indonesia, South Africa, I mean, you name the country, the state has a degree to which it controls the leading unions in the country. Even in the United States, I would say the AFL-CIO is very close to the, you know, the leadership, and they won't do things that are outside of the uh, realm of, you know, you know, you know, basic collective bargaining, and they may go on strike for a day if they're lucky, but they actually not able to keep their jobs. But in large part, the first point would be is that the states control the workers' organizations or the existing unions, as you, as you rightly put it. And that as a consequence, um, they essentially abide by the norms of international trade, which is highly unequal and is based on, uh, I would say, very clearly super exploitation of workers, you know, where you know workers might get a few cents an hour. Uh, in many cases, that's actually all the wages they get in places like India. Uh, and, uh, you know, for products that we pay, uh, you know, much more for, but even if we pay more for it, it's actually low-cost uh, products here in this country. Uh, and so um, the existing unions in places like, uh, just very briefly in India, they are unable to organize these sectors of workers. They're stuck in the, you know, the 1950s and 60s models of traditional unionism where you have high levels of bureaucracy, where there isn't that much conflict that goes on necessarily, and where these these industries are declining to a large extent. So if you have a steel industry that's in the state sector, say in India, uh, that industry is likely to decline because wages are higher, so that production will shift to another location. Mm-hmm. And that, go, that goes for other major industries. But I think the best example would come from South Africa, where uh, at the end of the uh, you know racist apartheid system in 1994, and the... Uh, creation of a post-apartheid South Africa based on democracy and rights and so forth. One of the things that did not take place was that there wasn't a transition economically toward economic democracy where mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the land that was controlled by the white population was not redistributed. None of it was, actually. Mm-hmm. And so you had you know, these unions that had been formed that were very progressive, that were, in fact, aligned with the state. So in South Africa... Uh, it's referred to as a tripartite accord where you have the political party, the African National Congress, which is uh, directly aligned with the major union, COSATU, mm-hmm. uh, Union Federation. And so uh, where there was major conflict and continues to be in the mining sector in, in, in South Africa, where, by the way, our cars are produced with uh, every, almost every one of them with, with platinum that is produced in South Africa, and so, in fact, South Africa is an integral part in the production of any car virtually wow. because some 90% of all platinum is produced in South Africa, or mined in South Africa. Wow. And so um, the workers in these mines, uh, you know, uh, often what took place is that the platinum companies, most of them owned by European you know, uh, large multinationals outside of South Africa, really dictated the terms for the the unions there, and the unions became very corrupt. In this case, it would be the National Union of Mine Workers. They uh, acceded to uh, you know specific kinds of demands. Uh, some of the leadership uh, was bought out uh, within the uh, mining uh, workers' unions, the National Union of Mine Workers, and so they basically represented the interests of management and not the interests of the workers. Mm-hmm. So what happened in South Africa, I'd say between 2009 and the present, was a wave of strikes. The major worker militancy in the mining sector, which is the most important with respect to foreign exchange in South Africa. And so um, essentially what happened was a one of the leading, I'd say the biggest strike in the last decade took place in South Africa. Uh, about three years ago in 2014, a six, seven-month strike 
uh, in the time and mine sector where 70,000 workers went on strike for six, seven months, which wow. is really a lot to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to say because, uh, you know, that means the workers aren't getting paid for six or seven months. Right. And uh, it means that, um, you know, they're depending on their families for support or any kind of minimal support they can. And in this case, the workers form their own uh, independent assemblies uh, in specific locations throughout the mining belt. Uh, which is a very large region in the most, you know, one of the most mineral-rich parts of the world, if not the most. And so many of these workers, by the way, are migrant workers, and they uh, went on a major strike against the major multinational corporations, Anglo-American, London, uh, and many of these, again, were funded, are funded by finance capital and so forth. And they're controlled by, you know, companies in the Bahamas, as I pointed out earlier, London or Switzerland. And most of them don't have any local control whatsoever. And so what they did was they created their own union, although this process is still uh, working itself out and probably there will be continued uh, strikes depending on how the unions treat them. Uh, But what happened there is that because the state uh, unions or the dominant unions in the state were not representative of workers in the mining sector, the miners, uh, rebelled and they engaged in their own collective activity and they um, went on major strikes. In fact, they pushed their new independent union to go on strike. It wasn't the other way around. The union would say, oh, we, we think the situation is too bad. You should go on strike. The workers said to the, the union leadership, we are going on strike and you have to support us. Mm-hmm. There's you know, really kind of democratic control that is really remarkable yeah. that we haven't seen in the United States for 70 years. Wow. Yeah, so they yeah they had to push the union, and if the union probably didn't go with that, they would kind of lose their credibility credibility exactly. in that sense. So so, how did these companies retaliate? Seven months, which is we say about eight or nine months, seventy thousand workers. How did they retaliate? Yeah, seven. Seven. Yes, sir. Well, you know, initially what the uh, what was happening in the year two thousand twelve in August two thousand twelve particularly August 16, 2012, there was a strike in a major mining uh, belt uh, of a major, mi- major mining company called Longman, L-O-N-M-I-N, a London-based company, which also has some, South Africa has some stake in. And uh, there you had essentially the declining credibility of the existing union, the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, where they were essentially supporting the corporate position along with the state. Uh, and workers rebelling against it. You know, you had rock drillers working underground for, you know, eight, ten hours a day, uh, going on strike and, you know, sitting on the mountaintops and so forth and refusing to work. And what this led to was, uh, an armed, uh, re- you know, uh, resistance by, by corporate thugs. Armed. Wow. I wouldn't say armed resistance. Our, our, our response by corporate thugs and also by the South African state police. Wow. So on the 16th of, uh, of August, uh, almost five years ago, uh, the uh, state engaged in, I would argue, basically a mass killing of workers. And so some 35 workers were uh, massacred uh, on that date in the city of Maracana. And uh, this uh, you know, demonstrated the degree to which the state, even the South African post-apartheid state, that was, uh, you know, Mandela became the first president of, was really in the hands of multinational capitalists. And they were actually doing the bidding for them in this uh, in the neoliberal system, mm-hmm. because the mine workers union, you know, at the time of the end of apartheid, was one of the most progressive worker unions. And then, you know, five, you know, ten years later, they become an arm of these big uh, mining companies. Mm-hmm. And so the workers, you know, recognize, especially mine workers, have a high level of solidarity and engage in resistance to a large extent than many other workers. They recognize this, and they went on, you know, strikes throughout the region. And so because they would be winning very high levels of wage increases, um, you know, there was a lot of opposition by the state, by the mining company, which were directly working, as well as the union, which were directly working against the workers themselves. So there were a number, there were several, you know, you know workers' assemblies, and I wouldn't say several, there were hundreds of them throughout the region. But in the case of Maricana, this uh, infamous uh, event that took place, um, uh, you had the uh, main union, uh, National Union of Mine Workers. You had the company and the state uh, engaged in uh, collaboration uh, to actually kill workers. Actually, there's a very good film on this subject by Rihad Desai, um, 
was called Miner Shot Down. Mm. Uh, you can see it on YouTube, and you'll see exactly direct footage of these specific events that took place there. Wow. And that sparked a major strike wave, uh, actually, began before them, but it, it, it intensified the strike in turn amongst many more workers throughout the region, and it created a mass movement, which, you know, hopefully, you know, I would argue it still exists to this day, potentially, and where wages were tripled within a period of three, oh, wow. four years. Uh, you know, I mean, on the backs of lots of, you know, workers getting killed. Yeah. So did this strike affect other industries in South Africa and those workers kind of getting together too? Yeah, actually it did. Uh, the strike that we were just talking about that mm. in the mining belt amongst platinum workers between January and June 2014 sparked many other uh, unions, especially in the metals and auto production sector, to go on strike. Wow. So uh, there was a, um, a major strike amongst uh, metal workers. Uh, who are getting paid, you know, minimum wage, which in South Africa is probably the equivalent of, you know, $2 here in this country, uh, who, who went on strike, uh, and two hours, two hours an hour, who, who went on strike uh, for those people who were the lowest paid in the metal workers or auto sectors of the economy. Mm-hmm. And that actually was a successful one-month strike of you know, tens of thousands of workers, too. So it did create a new uh, idea that workers could, uh, gain uh, tremendously as uh, you know through uh, collective activity, uh, and you know the only problem is that workers need proper unions to represent them. You know I do believe in worker self-activity and uh, workers doing it on their own, but they can only do it really with a very progressive political organization that's unified that can uh, bring together the interests of workers in one place. So yeah, workers are engaged in the major strikes and so forth, but they're unified in some ways through uh, political organizations and unions that are highly uh, progressive in the sense that they're very much committed and devoted to advancing worker interests and opposed to uh, the exploitation of workers by corporations. We'll be right back. What do you see as the future uh, for independent militant labor unions in the global south? Uh, well, I would say that's the only way ahead mm. because in, in large part the uh, existing unions are spent forces um, and that any union that you know, engages in uh, collaboration with the state and, and capital is really discredited in the minds of most workers. Mm. So, you know, you see continuous changes in the representation often amongst various unions, but if, if irrespective of who that union is, whether independent union or not, if they don't represent the interests of workers, they will be pushed out if the workers have the ability to do so. Now, frequently you have a very strong state and repressive state that may prevent that from happening, but I would argue the only future for a major workers' movement is through these new forces. You know, you know nothing is forever, in fact. Right. Uh, it's always important to recognize that, you know, when you see a 
union that is kind of hollowed out, and it's only really a bureaucratic force uh, that is kind of very closely tied to capital. Uh, it it uh, loses credibility amongst the public, but especially amongst the workers themselves. And, you know, many of us, uh, you know, many people in the United States have those same kinds of unions, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, I support unions, you know, fully. I'm not, you know, picking out any specific union. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it has to do with the ability of workers to collectively engage in struggles. And also, you know, they have to be put to the task of you know, forming organizations because without those organizations, you don't have any continuity to uh, a strike. Uh, if you, if anyone who looks at workers over the history of the last 150, 200 years, workers will always go on strike. They'll always complain. They'll always engage in solidarity and so forth amongst themselves. The big question is, will they have unions to keep them, uh, defend their interests? Will they have a political force that is uh, there for the workers? Because what we refer to as worker spontaneity is a very important point. We have workers are always militant. There's no change in that. We can't say that uh, the workers' movement is now conservative. It's now not interested in organizing. I would say it's the representatives of workers who are uh, essentially comfortable in their positions and are creating the sense that there's nothing that can be done. Uh, whereas you know workers you know who may complain, who may uh, uh, engage in various types of collective activity. That's never frequently, is rarely transformed into actual organization that's capable of strength and uh, resistance against these kinds of oppressive activities by managers. So the future of the working class is going to be, I think it actually, one point I'd like to make about the book is that, in, in general, it's not just the book, uh, is that the majority of the workforce in the planet is in the global south. Yeah. And we're talking about uh, a workforce that's far larger than ever was in the uh, in North America, even in the manufacturing sector, you know, or any part of the West. We're talking about, you know, I would say close to a billion workers who are in manufacturing. Wow. At no time in, was that the case, in, you know, if you combine Japan, Europe, and, and North America. At no time in the history was that. So I'd say that the workforce is vastly expanded, and the opportunity for workers to improve their conditions is very great if they organize. So the only way forward is through creating uh, or Organizations that create and reflect the interests, create or uh, you know solid uh, representative democratic democratic uh, organizations that are backed by the workers. That's the only way forward. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, around so, the world. So it sounds like although you might have a union, the workers need to stay engaged and force that union to represent them. In a sense, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, al- it's always that way, that way, and, and that the union has to be responsible in uh, representing those interests, uh, and also not, you know, thinking in the narrow sense that you know we have to, you know, essentially make sure that we get an agreement with management that's uh, substandard, let's say, in this country, which mm-hmm. is usually the case. Mm-hmm. But actually, looking for you know ways to build power for workers to create a vision that is much greater than we have today inspiring workers and so forth, rather than saying, oh, this is all we got, a uh, 1% increase over three years or, you know, even more, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, which is what, you know, a lot of workers in this country experience in unions, which mm-hmm. is better than nothing, which if you don't have a union, that's even worse. But right. still, there's a lot more that, you know, can inspire, you know, organize workers here in this country. And we could take a lot of lessons from South Africa, India, and beyond China uh, about worker militancy and, the kinds of risks that these workers take to uh, mobilize. Right. And they're very effective in, in many ways. You know, you don't have to get killed in order to mobilize, I would say, yeah. in, mo- in some instances. But, you know, so that in this country, we don't have to do that. But if people are engaged in the kind of militant activity there, you know, certainly we can envision uh, workers taking some risks here that don't involve uh, the kinds of um, uh, consequences that, you know, that might take place let's say, in South Africa. Yeah, and and, and and speaking of consequences, w- what are some of the consequences for people who live in the global north for for exploiting the global south? That's a very good question and one that I'm very interested in. Um, well, you know, I think we might complain about our conditions deteriorating, and there's no question about it that you know we don't we no longer have a protective state that uh, unemployment insurance isn't enough that um, 
healthcare isn't as widespread as it could be, and the plans are not as uh, robust as they were in the past, pensions and so forth, that we have a lot of low-wage jobs. Uh, and so, um, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, economic nationalism and bringing back, um, you know, auto production to the United States, say, well, bringing back electronics, you know, first of all, that's not going to happen, especially with respect to electronics and clothing manufacturing, because corporations will never do that. In order to to produce, uh, you know, a T-shirt, or what is it, 10, 20, you know, let's say $10, or it could be less, let's say even $3. Can you imagine what uh, yeah. it would take uh, to produce that in the United States? Right, it, it wouldn't be able to do it. Right. Uh, and, you know, and, and so... I think we should be cognizant of the fact that workers in the global south deserve, uh, you know, higher wages, and we shouldn't, you know, it's not not, not like we we shouldn't buy these products necessarily, uh, because I think that you know doesn't really lead to anything uh, consequential unless it's done in an organized fashion. But it, what it really means is that, uh, you know, the kind of economic nationalism that we've seen uh, under Trump uh, and so forth is, first of all, a fantasy. Uh, you know, do we want to pay $1,500 for our phone or $2,000 for our iPhone? I, I don't think so. Right. Uh, unless we want to challenge the corporations like Apple to say, you know, you should charge what you paid, for, you know, what you bought it for and so forth or a little over. You know, the profit margins are, you know, based on super exploited labor. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we should recognize this bad fact that, you know, even while we may be complaining about the price of products, uh, those prices would be far higher if they were produced in the United States. And so, you know, we should support American workers who are organizing in the industrial sector, and we should also, you know, be very mindful of the ways in which uh, workers around the world are also organizing, not only in industrial sectors, but service sectors, you know, for instance, call center workers and um, uh, IT workers around the world. Many of them are amongst the lowest paid workers in the world. For instance, you know, the the growing... uh, uh, industry around IT, you have certain people who are engaged in the uh, internet uh, translation services, etc., who paid, you know, a penny per, I don't know, sometimes, you know, very, very low wages, you know, and then, you know less than, a, I'd say, less than a dollar an hour, certainly. And so you, a lot of workers are struggling in very low wages. So here in the United States, I think what we need to do is, you know, I think without question is develop a, a, you know, a organizational, organizational basis around the country that address, I think, the most fundamental question with respect to labor, and that is the uh, shift in production on a global scale. What are the consequences, for instance, the Americans um, being 5% of the global population and consuming 25, 30% of all resources mm-hmm. uh, around the world? So, it's, it's, you know, we have to you know, engage in solidarity with workers around the world and recognize the positions, uh, you know, the differences in position. And I think that would also improve the conditions of workers here in this country. Uh, certainly this has to be done, I think, without question through organization. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think anyone who's interested in building an organization rooted in understanding the workforce on a global basis, any group of people will be highly successful. And I think that's really the lesson uh, one of the, one of the lessons of this uh, research, that I hope that many others will continue to do. It's very important research to recognize. You know, more than half of humanity is living in really abject poverty uh, conditions, mm-hmm. and that um, those people count, and those people's lives uh, are extremely important to uh, the system of global capitalism and their, you know, their work, and. Um, we should, we should fight for the conditions both to safeguard our own and also to improve uh, uh, our own as well. I don't think that we'll be able to do that alone as independent consumers saying, I'm going to boycott this product or another. We have to build organizations. So mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing that people uh, that I'm trying to do, and I think uh, many others are yeah. uh, trying to recognize you know, how the global commodity chain is linked together and that, that we're far more Getting back to your first point, why does the media not cover it? Because we're far more integrated on a global scale. While the economic process of capitalism is fully integrated, workers don't recognize that level of of integration. Mm, Yeah. And and this whole fight for 15, if wages increase here, 
will that in some somehow benefit the global south and increase their wages in a sense because it seems like I know, you know, these multinationals are trying any way to show some kind of profit when it comes to Wall Street. But if people in the global north who have all the money are able to have more money to spend, right, couldn't the companies just yeah. increase the cost of some of the stuff they make <laughs> to kind of help out in a sense, kind of kind of ease the tension that's going on in the global south when it comes to wages? I mean, I don't understand why. That is such a difficult thing to do, but yeah. Well, I can tell you right now, I, I agree that they should do that. But you know, if you take a look at the cost of any product, it's not in any way related to the wages we make. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Only in the sense that you know, could we afford to buy it? So if people make, uh, you know, we fight for fifteen. That's an incredibly important thing because we can't survive on uh, eight, ten dollars an hour. Uh, and that at the same time, I guess we become consumers and. Um, you know, we'll have uh, higher levels of inflation, but we become consumers. But if we take a look at the behavior of, of corporations, they don't really look at American workers as almost part of the global production process anymore. No. Right. So uh, um, I'm not sure if uh, it's linked, but I think it's an extremely important uh, endeavor to uh, struggle for higher wages in this country, yeah. um, and uh, especially in the public sector and you know, and so forth, where there's a major fight, but also in places like, you know, obviously in the fast food uh, and uh, department stores and coffee shops, etc. There's a huge need to do that. Uh, you know, my question would be, just getting the question in the case of coffee shops, do you think if workers get paid $50 an hour, they'll have any price effect on the actual growers of coffee? And I, I don't think it will. I mean, honestly, if you want my opinion, I think it's a nice thing to say. Yeah. You know, envision, but I'm not sure if it does or not. Yeah, I, I'd like to end it on a high note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, but no, I I think the book the book is positive in a sense. You know, it, it's it's telling the reality of what's going on, but it also shows that you know you can only back up a person so far in a corner before they're gonna demand to get out of that corner, and it shows that with human nature, solidarity, you know, uh, is very powerful against forces that want to somehow separate you and put you in precarious situations where you don't have your rights. So this book shows that it is possible. This isn't just some something you will see in a movie. This is happening now. And yeah. books like yours, which the media is trying not to show, not, not your book necessarily, but show what is going on in the global south, you know, because they know that can lead to people – uh, you know, feeling a little sympathetic and might actually help, uh, you know, th these people in this situation, and that will affect these companies' bottom line. So I, I, I look at the book as a very positive book in, in, in that sense. Absolutely, Kaj. And actually, I am an optimist, believe it or not. And I believe in the possibility, actually, the actuality of a change, not change, but uh, uh, workers' movements will lead to a far greater. Uh, and better conditions for uh, working class people and uh, people who are poor in this country and throughout the world. I think we have to be realistic in that sense. But, uh, you know, for instance, the, you know, capitalists and businesses and the state, they, they don't want people who are idealists, uh, who mm -hmm. think, oh, yeah, we're going to create something in the future where everybody's going to live in, uh, you know, tranquility and peace and so forth. They're more concerned with people who are actually organizing or engaged in struggle. That's what matters. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can leave them whatever we want, but, you know, this is the anniversary of a major event, you know, 100-year anniversary of the um, a revolution, the Russian Revolution, which actually sought to, you know, create peace and bread mm -hmm. and unity amongst the workers. And, you know, whatever people thought the outcome was, that's a question. Uh, who would, uh, A year before, even months before, who would have thought that, you know, the, the world would be uh, transformed um, a major, you know, uh, a segment of the world would be transformed, I think, in a positive way through, you know, uh, pulling people out of uh, serfdom, uh, serf-like conditions. Mm -hmm. But these, I mean, I would say here, here in this country, also these kinds of changes are inevitable at some point, and I think we have to, you know, in, I would say even a, even more modestly, building uh, a workers' movement is inevitable, and we have to fight for it, but we can't do so without, you know, just thinking it's inevitable. We have to engage in direct uh, kinds of activity 
to advance those causes. So I, I, I think people will do that. And, I, and, and as an organizer throughout my life, I think uh, that's really an aspiration of workers to have a democratic force in the workplace. And I've seen it happen. I just think we need good organizations that are effective and think bigger and act on that as well, not just think, but act on those mm-hmm. uh, beliefs. And, you know, it doesn't matter what people believe in as long as they struggle for better and improved conditions for their uh, fellow workers and also solidarity throughout the world. We'll be right back. Research. Did anything surprise you when you when you were doing creating this book? Anything surprised you the most? Uh, I, I think I, I actually did uh, learn a major. You know, not just, not necessarily surprised, but I, I, I sort of moved away from this position that many of us have. Uh, you know, toward an idealism of uh, you know socialism, which I think is actually possible. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, uh, but we can't be idealistic about it. We have to say we have to fight for that. We have yeah. to engage in uh, struggle, but not only for ourselves, but uh, recognizing the significance of the global economy. So I, I was really surprised by the degree to which workers engage in mass action uh, uh, and are able to organize and um, are, extre- are highly willing to uh, take tremendous risks um, and uh, have uh, you know subsequently improved their conditions significantly, although there's a really long way to go. So, I have to say the extent of all this, re- you know, the, the struggle surprised me. But also, I'd say also at the same point, and, and you know, I guess that with, in many instances there isn't any organization. So you have a major strike, uh, and that there's no, you know, for instance, in India there are organizations, but. You know, without those organizations, or if they're extremely weak, they're not going to really lead to anything uh, in a sustainable fashion. So we need to create sustained, you know, militant organizations over. And I, I'd say that that is the recognition that we cannot, you know, just say workers are engaged in major strikes, they're engaged in solidarity. We know that already, and that's that's a great thing. Uh, and I think we can take it to another level if we were to recognize the possibilities through. Uh, the ideas of worker self-activity and militancy uh, that take place, not just ideas of reality that takes place, and also uh, how a really um, egalitarian democratic organization can actually push it to a higher extent. Mm-hmm. So that's I, I really was, and that was actually a major um, point in this uh, whole work. That yeah, it's it's self-activity, incredible levels of solidarity, and the need for organization. Mm-hmm. And, and not the Democratic Party or the or the AFL scale type organizations. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and finally, what do you want the reader to mainly take away? Uh, their direct linkage to the world economy. So, for instance, um, you know, people who read the book in the United States or North America should you know recognize that the automobiles they buy, that the electronics they buy, that the clothing they buy. I mean is uh, you know, linked to workers in the most remote parts of the world to us. You know, So, for instance, um, virtually every commodity we purchase uh, is uh, produced outside the United States, and it's not at the backs of losing jobs here in this country necessarily, almost not at all. 
but you know we're dependent on those low wage products uh, and that we should you know that's why I think we should reach out to uh, engage in solidarity with workers of the global south. I think it's crucial to do so, and that's how change will take place. And we have uh, you know, basically a great possibility of building solidarity across borders. And that's really what the major thing I'd like readers to uh, take away from it. And it's not just me. I think there's a lot of people who feel the same way. There's a lot of other good books on the same topic that I would recommend. Uh, John Smith's uh, imperialism in the 21st century, uh, and beyond that, take the same position. The uh, revelatory work of Zach Cope, Divided World, Divided Class, I mean, Divided Class, Divided World. Uh, there's just a lot of uh, uh, really good work that's coming out on this topic, and it's not just me. It's not, I'm not the only person that's doing this kind of research. Uh, it's many people who are engaged in this, and I hope the readers will. In, in, both uh, take it in and also potentially engage in this kind of research. Um, I think it's really important uh, and uh, to document, and then we can act on it. So without actually documenting it, we can't act on understanding these global inequalities that exist and how we are related to it and how we can actually improve our own uh, conditions in this country through uh, building solidarity organizations here okay. with workers. Well, Professor Emanuel Ness, Thank you so much for writing this book and being on the show today. Thanks, Taj. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. Take care. Bye. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, and also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. Explore.